Welcome to the show. If you want to help support this show, this ad-free content, here we are, is supported 100% by Patreon supporters. So head over to patreon.com slash Shane Moss. That's how pay the editor. That's how I pay my assistant who helps out with social media and does a bunch of other stuff, including helping with the editing. Uh, these things do cost money to make and your support pays for them as well. There is meetups and uh, board game, virtual board game nights. You can meet other Here We Are listeners. There's always a good group of folks. There's group overshares. Uh, it's a winter time and people are hunkered in a little more. We're doing more and more group overshare, by the way, is just I'm not I'm not great with small talk. So I just put together something where the point is big talk um, and just sharing and uh, stuff that you don't normally share necessarily with strangers. It's a lot of fun. Um, so check that out if you want, even if you don't want to participate in that stuff or the Discord there. You're supporting this show. And uh, with that, I think this is a really good um, episode and really a, a good way to kick things off for 2022. Are we? Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. Hello, everybody. We have a return guest. So you know what that means? You know, it's going to be a good episode. Why would I invite a guest back if it, if they weren't good the first time? That's <laughs> uh, It's always a good time to have a return guest. Not only do you know that they're good, but we also uh, have uh, built a, you know, more of a rapport and everything else. The first time that Emily was on, she was talking about her book, Fallacy. We talked all about uh, various insect penises and other things. And I, I imagine I appreciate Emily uh, indulging me as as uh, I imagine when when you write a book about the science of wildlife penises, you get a lot of interview requests and you got to ask yourself, now, does this person genuinely care about science or <laughs> do they want to hear about penises? And then especially right. when the person happens to be a, a, a comedian for a living that reaches out to you. <laughs> and lo and behold, I actually do care about science. And I extended the offer uh, for her to come and talk about her new book that just came out. When did it come out, by the way? Actually, the 14th. So three days ago fantastic this is i think this is really good timing as this episode is coming out just before new year's in the rough calculations i'm doing in my head um kind of a kind of a good way to start out the year thinking the mm. book is called the tailored brain from ketamine to keto to companionship a user's guide to feeling better and thinking smarter this is that time of year when when everyone's trying to think about the various nudges hopefully nudges that you can do. Uh, some people are like, I'm going to fix everything in my life. And then you're going to fail miserably by February. <laughs> but um, but this is a wonderful time to hear about some things that you can do to uh, tune up your life a little bit. And uh, love talking about the brain generally. So thank you, Emily, for coming on the show. Oh, em Emily Willingham, everybody. 
Thanks, Emily. Oh, hi. Sorry. Thank you. <laughs> I think my mic tech just, adjustments. Yeah, yeah, my mic just did something weird. I was trying to fix it, but I'm glad to be here. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, thanks for having me on. <laughs> Absolutely. Thanks for joining me. Uh all right. Your book just came out. Um, tell me all about it. I I love uh I love blabbing about the brain, so it's <laughs> endless. We'll have plenty to talk about. Well, I came into writing this book um with a couple of aims. One of them was that I think when people hear extraordinary claims that it helps to kind of set expectations around what, how those could really pan out. And so that was one of the things that I was trying to do with this book. Another one was to look at this, not from your own brain, from the inside out, although I do a lot of that, but how your brain interacts with other brains and that that is completely relevant to whether or not you are comfortable with your own. So there's a great deal of, um, emphasis on that social aspect of how we use our brains with other brains around us. So those are two key aspects of it. Very cool. Yeah. We just had a episode, uh, maybe, uh, uh, maybe two months ago, not even, um, called, uh, the knowledge illusion, uh, authors of a book called the knowledge illusion, why we never think alone. And it was kind of reframing a lot of the various cognitive biases that, um, that, you know, they're fun to hear about and be like, Hey, look how stupid we are and everything. <laughs> and they, and they kind of, they kind of reframed them in, in a way of, of, uh, looking at it from, uh, the brain as uh, a part of a, you know, we're social animals and our, mm-hmm. our brain, not just a brain thinking all on its own, but connected with so many other people exactly. and a part of a, a social mind. And so hopefully listeners got to hear that and are kind of a little familiar with that idea. Yeah. And I think one of the things that I highlight in the book is that when you, you know, you see supplements and brain games and all these other things that make promises, but they don't actually focus on that aspect at all. Nobody's like, here's how you're going to, you know, improve your social cognition in a pill. And I've just seen at this evolutionarily kind of nonsensical because we, I, almost none of us, we, you know, we don't live alone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Never yeah. interacting. But I mean, you and I are interacting right now, even though we're not in the same room, right? We're always interacting with other people and it has effects on us and the other person when we do that. So. Even when we're alone, we're often imagining future conversations <laughs> right? that we're having okay. with people yes. or revisiting. See, that I have a whole chapter on how you know we sharpen our right, how we behave in situations because we do that review <laughs> and yeah. sometimes get into a spiral about it where you're thinking, dang, I did this like so many times, I need to stop doing whatever you know thing you think was inane in the social situation. But yes, you do that review, you time travel backwards so you can make predictions about or plan how you might behave later right so there's a lot of time travel that goes on with that as well oh i love a good spiral too wow i can (laughs) i can really get into it it's i i like when uh when uh, I've, I've been doing these things, um, I've been doing these silly things I've been putting on Patreon. Uh, I've been doing guided ruminations. Um, I saw that. Where I just sit and ruminate a little mm-hmm. bit. And I, I was just on one of them. I was I was thinking about those those silly childhood memories that'll pop up that like you you, you tripped uh, someone tripped you. You tripped in front of people. You tripped tripped someone else and in like fifth grade or something like that. And then you're, you're, 
you're 40 years old and this cafeteria tripping memory pops into your head and it's like, <laughs> what in the world made my brain decide that that this moment is when I needed to revisit this tripping incident as, yep. as, as if that's, as if that's going to come up. <laughs> right. I knocked a window in the cafeteria out with my butt when I was in, um, a freshman in high school because I was laughing at something and kind of threw myself back and just hit it with my rear end and knocked it out and the whole cafeteria just goes dead silent, right? And yeah. I haven't thought about that in a really long time until you just brought it up. Associative memories. And now, you know, maybe later I'll start thinking about it and I'll go into some horrible spiral about all the times I've publicly embarrassed myself oh, when you yeah. know, I was think, younger. Right? Think about the person you'd be today had you not knocked that window Had I not out. done that with my butt. You I know? mean, don't, don't you think that is some of the reappraisal stuff is is that i mean it seems like there's a lot of somewhat random somewhat just like ooh, i was here in this place going past my old high school or something you have a memory come up so there's obviously a lot of associative memory stuff going on uh too but but i i feel like some of those memories as, as well are are very dependent kind of kind of what gets cataloged what gets highlighted in the brain and then delivered into your conscious experience as those bizarre little reminders from the from the past uh, <laughs> i feel like some of the criteria that the brain must be using is is running a simulation of kind of where you are right now and where you might be had that situation gone differently you know if you're kind of right if kind of like sort a of, butterfly effect. If I hadn't done that thing with my butt, would I be here talking to you now? <laughs> right, <laughs> Which right. that quote could totally be taken out of context, but yeah, you know, yeah, exactly. So, and we do that. Um, we, we revisit those things and we summon up those memories, and I, but we kind of re, you said reappraisal, which, you know, is a thing everybody can kind of try to make, you know, things like give it context and purpose. And I wouldn't be here if I hadn't done the thing, <laughs> yeah. but, but also I think we kind of retell the story to ourselves maybe in ways that, that give it contour instead of being just kind of this mess in our heads. And maybe we find that useful as well because we're taking our perspective when we do it. We're taking the perspective of the people who may have been laughing at us. We wonder where they are today. You know? yeah, <laughs> and yeah. All that kind of thing. Probably it's all in very, a gutter. Well, I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm kidding. I know, but it's all it's, very social in the end, you know, when we're doing right. that. It's, it's, and yeah, that's, it's also interesting the way the malleability of of those memories as well and our um uh, our relationship uh, to them through time and just through attitude depending on where you're at today depending on what what mm -hmm. uh, side of the bed you woke up on if you're say you're reflecting on getting fired from a job 10 years ago well if you're in a good place today that was the best thing that ever happened to you <laughs> and you would have never done this and that and then got inspired right. and blah 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 and if you're in a bad place today well that was the nail in the coffin and you've just never recovered from it and that that exact same circumstance depending on where you're at right now can be reflected on so com incredibly differently yeah. And that's, you know, it's situational, which is one reason that resilience, which people talk about a lot, is also situational. It's not like we all have some sort of inborn threshold of, you know, resilience up, up to which with which we can put things. And 
I, you know, it changes for us from day to day. And we have one day we have a, a, an experience and we are very resilient to it. And we just bounce back and we're like, da, 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 I'm in a good place. And then we get a very similar experience a year later and just be devastated. Right. And take a lot more time to come back from it. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So much is situational. What, what's going on with resilience? Boy, I could use some more of that stuff. I, I'm a, I, yeah. I like to, I'm, I'm I'm real quick to to throw in the old towel. I'll, I'll give myself that. It's like a real like, kind of like athletic ability, like just very fast reflexes. I can throw in a towel on on a, a spin of a dime. No, what's the what's the expression? Drop of it a hat. A, a drop on of a, a hat. Dime. Sure, I think people yeah. just turn on the dime. <laughs> turn right? on a dime. I don't yeah. know where that. It, but so, but the question is, do you leave it dropped when you drop it? Because there's an initial reaction, right? But then there's a follow up. Because I'll just be like, ah, screw this, and like yeah. I'm just not doing the thing. And then I don't know, 15 or 20 minutes later, I'll be like a bulldog or a terrier with it. And she'd be like, I'm going to do this thing, and I'm going to like crush the thing. And so, you know, I don't know. I think that's just a time thing. And sometimes we come back in 20 minutes and we're resilient to it. And sometimes it takes years. It depends on a lot of factors. Man, it's so, it's so interesting when those, you have those times where I, I got some, I got some really not ideal news. It, it was it wasn't bad. It was just something I was really counting on, got pushed back by like a good half a year or something. And, mm-hmm. and uh, it just, something about it freed up my mind in this way and it gave me a clearer path forward and other things and I just had such a positive reaction to it and I've been inspired and everything else ever since and then you know I'll just like have a shoelace break one day and be like oh what's even the point why why do anything but you know, you, on that day the shoelace broke. Like, what else happened? But it's not the shoelace, right? It's a <laughs> right. bunch of other things that led up to the shoelace. Where that was just you were just out of as the you know, the disability community calls it spoons. You were just out. You yeah. had nothing else to give, <laughs> even though that seemed minor. <laughs> Everything yeah. that came before it obviously wasn't for you that day. So, yeah. I well, I I, I love this. Um, th- this is especially good timing for this book because. Uh, all, all through COVID, and as I as I learn about um, uh, some history of past pandemics, this this tends to be a theme of of there's a there's a lot of interesting things psychologically that happen. There's a, a lot of people actually start taking better care of themselves when when there are these threats, whether it's because they become more mindful of their health or because it's a way of kind of uh, taking more a feeling of predictability and control and like doing something about the, about the situation that's within their control. Other people fall apart as well, but, but there, there's a, there's a good trend of, of, of people that end up taking uh, care of themselves in a lot of ways. And then at the same time, there's uh I mean, it, through history, you can find all these crazy ads for just various supplements and snake oil type things being being peddled during every um pandemic and and i i i it was probably who knows if this one's worse because of the internet or anything but it's uh it's it's the first pandemic that i've been through and it's a, a real it's been real eye opening in some of the wellness um communities and stuff especially yeah in terms of uh, i i think one of the things is that um you know there's there's some people that are like hey there's all of this we can um 
learn more about what's happening and we can, um, you know, be enthusiastic about uh, medical and scientific developments. And in addition to that, here's these supplements or this exercise routine you may want to try or whatever. And then there's other people that, uh, you know, view kind of the establishment as their competitors and kind of say, well, you don't need any of that stuff. You need my thing. Come and get my uh, vitamin injections or or <laughs> whatever else, uh, which I was just offered uh, a couple days ago. Um, <laughs> but, Did you take it? <laughs> uh, Did you no, go get the vitamin injection? No, I got uh, I got offered a bunch of like a supply of, like, I don't know if it was B12 or something like oh. that. I oh. looked into it and it seemed like um, it, it seemed like something that's more beneficial to older people and and vegans and people yeah. that are deficient. And right. uh, yeah. so Usually, I just want to do something yeah. that I'm not deficient in. I do drink too much alcohol sometimes. And so, so it, it, it's, it's not even to say that that wouldn't be helpful for me or for some people, but, uh, but some, so just, just a lot of the, when you talk about the claims and the overselling, I've, I've just, yeah. I, I think we've all seen quite a bit of that. Yeah, I do try to emphasize in the book that, you know, when somebody tells you you have a problem, you should ask yourself for yourself, do I have a problem? Because just because there's some, even a social expectation out there that you should behave a certain way or think a certain way or feel a certain way, you know, that may be not the wor- the thing that works for you, which is one reason the book is called The Tailored Brain, because you can choose, you know, you should examine that and say, well, do I want to take whatever risk is involved and in what's being sold to me? or offered me um, because somebody else is telling me that I have a problem. Do I Mm -hmm. think I have a problem, you know, and kind of interrogate that for yourself as you try to make that decision, which you sounds like you did because Mm -hmm. what you said is true. B12 is indicated like if you're a vegan and there's certain amino acids you only get from animal proteins. And so it's right. It's something that connection like that. And, you know, that is something you do to back that up if that's a diet that you're using so yeah but i, I and then i'm just skeptical of putting something in that i'm not deficient in and in, in that, <laughs> that w- without looking into it without like i'm sure someone listening it'd be like that actually knows what they're talking about would be rolling their eyes at me right now my <laughs> intuition was like it's like the chapstick idea or whatever. And I don't know if this is true either, but I just feel like if I use chapstick, then I'm going to need <laughs> chapstick forever. And my lips are oh always going to be dry if I don't use it. I'm sure that's not the case with vitamins, but, I, but the, it, it's an interesting point. And it kind of, you know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. So the first question is you have to decide for yourself, well, do I feel that it's broken? Like, and, right. you know, I think the indication for those shots is that, yes, there's a deficiency and you're, you know, kind of making up for it with the shots. And if you don't have that, maybe you don't have an indication for it. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't a doctor that offered it to me. It was yeah. just someone that's kind of into various. My, my mother's fans. a huge B12 fan. She's always yeah, offering yeah. me B vitamins. She's like, have you tried B vitamins? <laughs> you know, I'm yeah. like, do, do, do. <laughs> I love her. She loves B vitamins, so. So, so what, what sort of research did you, um, do for this book? Oh gosh. Um, I started a research for this book before I started the, the book about the, the penis book as I just now have come (laughs) to think of it. And so I started it. Well, I mean, 
first of all, I have a doctorate in biological sciences and I've done some work, you know, studies involving the brain. So, I mean, there's a training there. I've taught um, anatomy and physiology, um, a bunch of things like that. So I have this background coming into it. But for this book specifically, I started that research and really intensely a few years ago and ended up going through... I, I tried to count it up the other day, but you know, it's four digits number of studies that I looked at and ultimately included a few hundred that I cite in the book because you've just got to choose some things, right, to focus on. So I tried to focus on things that have the most recent um, evidence base or studies addressing them and that seem to be kind of the most popular or that people are kind of most interested in when doing the book. Mm, um, that's... <sighs> I just <laughs> as soon as, as as soon as you said four digits worth of papers, I just I kind of stopped listening and just oh no, had a, I, I was still listening, but there was also a kind of nightmare going on in my head of imagining like I I wish I was the type of person that oh, could I do love that. It. And, I also read a bunch of books. Yeah, I love that stuff. That's my favorite part of um, this whole process is the research part. I read a ton of books. I interviewed people, of course, and it's my favorite part of it. I just sit there reading through things and I go down rabbit holes, come back up again, like three or four hours has gone by. You know, I just love it so much. I I love a good rabbit hole and I like reading and everything, (laughs) but but man, I'm I'm not at that that level. I'm finally, uh, finally after eight years of doing this, podcast fairly comfortable around around a paper but even that i wasn't college educated or anything took took some time uh even reading the things to start with you know it's funny it's like anything else if you start doing crossword puzzles you know you get to like predict like like certain clues you know that they mean something really specific that they're looking for and so you get really good at recognizing that and doing the puzzles and i think like parsing papers like this is pretty similar it's you don't have to have a degree but if once you've gone through this enough and gone through enough papers and i've spent the last 25 years going through several a day like honestly and um you just build this like Ability, you know, it's just like the crossword puzzles. You get really good at going yeah. through them and looking for like the places where they're kind of like you know, fuzzing things a little bit, or they're over speculating, and you know where they their confidence intervals probably maybe I don't know how much that means to you, but like they're really wide, and you're like okay, <laughs> yeah, and just lots of stuff like that. <laughs> I I mean just just in in practice it was because I I definitely had. Uh, you know, when I, when I started this and really started ramping up how much science I was reading years, years before I started this podcast and having a bit of a halo effect with the various, uh, scientists and, and, you know, appeal to authority type stuff. I also found that just in interviewing people, it's like, I hear, you know, I'll, talk to someone tomorrow that'll make the opposite point about vitamin B or, or whatever, you know, and, and, <laughs> mm-hmm. and that's, I, I'm just so used to hearing so many different takes around the same issues, um, that, that I, I kind of check it a little bit more, but anyway, regarding, re, regarding getting better at, uh, things that you're consuming, Going back to your uh, brain games skepticism, mm-hmm. I, because I think listeners probably know me as a bit of a skeptical person that sometimes teeters into 
often teeters into cynicism, I'd say, but, um, but, but I've also, I have, I sure have tried a whole bunch of things like this. I, I, I had a, um, Lumosity, I think it was account for oh, yeah. a while. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I really wanted to like get better at remembering names and things. And they had one of those on there and I tried some of the other things as well. And, um, yeah, and it was, it, it seemed like I got, better at playing those games and not not much else it didn't it didn't seem like the skills translated too much outside of those those games that's so i i I relied on experts who had done a lot of analyses of things like the video games and brain games and things like that and the the analyses of the data from us stuff that they had looked at and just you know there's enough out there to show that what you're describing is near transfer right where it just affects the skill that you're using to do the thing right so you get better at the spelling bee if you do it enough you know the new york times spelling bee you know do you do that at all do you do the spelling bee no at all if your listeners do they'll know what i mean if you see a d and an e in the spelling bee you know that you're going to be a crap ton of words in that that end in ed (laughs) so you just start like thinking about all those so that's a skill that you made from doing the spelling bee and so the same thing applies for those games you just you get better at that but there's not far transfer where it generalizes to other facets of your you know your thinking and your cognitive capacities so that's so interesting because i like and i think this is just here, here's solid life <laughs> advice that <laughs> that I'll stand behind in many circumstances. Finding finding things that require the least amount of effort that have the the most am- amount of reward isn't that what we're all after ultimately? It is it's probably apparently it's, it, it's it's not it's usually not uh, that practical. But what are what are some skills that so so that's something that has a low transfer rate? What are did you discover any skills or anything like that that does have a kind of a higher transfer rate? So in- that they will, that would have a kind of far transfer sort of global effects. I yeah. did. And unfortunately, it just takes, you know, the, it would require some effort. But the thing is, is that I think that why I think we think we want to something that's easy, like you just take a pill and you Bradley Cooper all of a sudden and limitless or whatever. But there is some gratification and satisfaction in working for something and and reaping benefits from it so i'm just going to predicate what i'm about to say with that and then right and so the there are three things that i found they're all extremely accessible and this by the way is what you can do yourself this doesn't go into the clinical realm like if you're clinically depressed please go consult a specialist about that right if you feel like you might be but um these are things we can all kind of access physical activity and I think there's there's a, there are layers to that. It's not just go outside and run three miles and you're good to go. Um, there's a lot going on when we talk about physical activity and effects that it has. It has some biochemical, physiological effects that people have, you know, they're pretty well established and the evidence base was good for it. And then you have to do a lot. You don't have to go run a marathon. You can get in a you know, half hour, 40 minutes, a few times a week of walking. And then if you add in to that either 
like some kind of practice, like you're walking in nature and doing it in sort of this mindfulness kind of way where you are sort of focusing on the world around you and taking it in and appreciating it. And you're in the moment and doing all of those things that are related to that, that helps as well. Or if you do it with a friend. Because as a species, we evolved. There's a great, there's a really interesting hypothesis out actually that we evolved doing physical activity with each other because we worked together, right, to get food and to rear children and That's to do all these other things. Yeah. And as we were doing those physical activities together and, you know, sharpening our social cognition, our ability to, you know, do these things socially, this kept our brains healthy for the longer lifespan that we have kind of as a species, which is oddly long. And we're one of the few species that lives past the reproductive period. And, you know, there's a hypothesis, the grandmother hypothesis is that we do that yeah. so we can care for little people with our genes and keep both the little people and our genes alive. Right. Yeah, but yeah. if you have this interaction can, can, with, yeah, yeah, if you have this interaction with yeah. that social responsibility and the physical activity keeps your brain healthy enough to do it well, those two things go together. So take a friend when you walk. That's interesting. <laughs> In nature. And, I, and I, my, my intuition, my default and how I kind of uh, think about my identity is, is someone that's a bit of a loner in a lot of ways and kind of, I just generally like doing mm -hmm. things by myself. Um, but yeah, Same. that's, that's, <laughs> that's, that's something that's, uh, that's definitely worth noting. I do go like going on hikes with friends and stuff. Can we go? This is going to be just a little bit of a tangent, but it's just a, a, sure. a nice opportunity for a uh, reminder for uh, ways to think about life that I like. Let's go back to the grandmother hypothesis quick, just because <laughs> it, 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 this, this probably isn't in, in uh, the tailored brain, but it is also relevant to um, the fallacy book and in some ways so <laughs> I, I love getting my audience thinking about evolution so the idea is so we take it for granted <laughs> that we live past these reproductive years but evolutionarily that doesn't make a whole lot of sense right that's something that kind of needs to be yeah yeah the idea is that if you're not reproducing then natural selection doesn't have anything to act on right because you're not directly passing on gene variants any longer so why would we be still hanging around past you know menopause or just into old age or you know, regardless of what kind of gamut you make why do we live so long mm -hmm. and that the grandmother hypothesis is one of the it's not you know it's not a theory. It's not something that's grown up and become a theory, but right. it is a hypothesis that, you know, that some people have tried to counter. It's not, you know, a hundred percent accepted or anything, but it's a plausible explanation in my mind. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love that. I just, I, I love thinking about things in that, in that way, because it's also, it's also sort of an explanation speaking of kind of wellness. And so it's, it's a potential explanation for, various things like um cancer alzheimer's things like that 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 evolution doesn't really have a chance to act on because you've already reproduced yeah. by the time that you have those things right. arrive yeah that it tends to be the case right so there's not a whole lot you can do about that but i mean ultimately if we survive childhood we on average do tend to live quite a long time and quite past our you know capacity really to reproduce or really interest in having more offspring for that matter. And um, the group that hypothesized this um, 
is uh, their their idea is that when we do physical activity, we do harm. I mean, physical activity causes harm to the body in a sense because we're breaking down muscle. And um, Daniel Lieberman, by the way, is a person is one of the per- people who is has talked about this idea and he wrote this book about physical activity just this year actually um anyway we do these things that are kind of harmful we create oxidant molecules and break down muscle but that exertion of doing that our bodies are like whoa look at the oxidant molecules got to do something about that and so they respond by cleaning those up with antioxidants and mopping up those damaging molecules and when they do that this hypothesis goes there's a bit of an overcorrection. And the way he described it to me is like, if you spill something on the floor and you clean it up, but then the floor ends up cleaner <laughs> than uh, before you spilled something, right? I thought that fun. was such a good analogy. I just loved exactly. it. And yeah. that creates a bit of a health buffer zone for us for other insults that come our way. So physical activity just sort of primes that for us, according to this hypothesis. And that keeps gives us what they call a healthy brain span. No, a brain health span that goes, you know, maybe the length of our lifespan past mm. those reproductive years and that makes us both physical activity and that brain capacity we take care of these younger people and contribute to keeping those little gene variants alive <laughs> amazing so, so that's uh, th- that's one of the things that um is just one of the bigger selling points for me for for exercises i you know when i do get in the habit of being more active just feels like my brain's a bit more active it just feels like i'm in a little bit better mood potentially potentially more mm-hmm. creative potentially a bit yep. more productive have a bit more energy usually the stuff that i am like i don't have the time to go and spend an hour or two or whatever working out typically ends up adding quite a bit of value for that time um yeah. spent and so it's nice to hear the some of the potential mechanisms out at work that are going on there. You're, it's interesting you're talking about the obstacles to that because um, the way Dr. Lieberman described this to me, exercise is, is you know, it's kind of, it's artificial. It's not natural physical activity. We're not doing it to get food or to take care of other people or anything like that. We're doing it because we kind of think we have to. And I think if you add in another person or you add in nature to that equation, it feels more like kind of the physical activity that, you know, we just do kind of spontaneously and always have as a species, but technology is kind Kind of taking up those duties for us right and so mm. as that en- encroaches on it we have to keep creating physical activities for ourselves but i think if you add in another person or experiences outdoors which is how we evolved right that that feels a little more natural and less of a burden to us and what you just said about mood and all that kind of thing the studies show that yes it definitely it has these these benefits for all of that yeah, I I would I I love thinking about these things in an evolutionary perspective because there's a lot of um I I I guess because I'm a little bit of a evangelical when it comes to evolution ironically enough I I I I tend to be a little bit flippant when I when I hear kind of top-down thinking and and when I when I hear kind of, uh, uh, you know, global health issues blamed solely on like culture or these corporations or too much junk food or whatever. And, but I almost never hear 
is these evolutionary explanations of, well, you were, you evolved these certain taste buds that are now kind of being hijacked by, by modernity. You evolved to not just run on a treadmill for no reason whatsoever. That's energy you would have needed. I hate it so much. (laughs) I hate it. It's it's so, you know, do you know Herman Ponser by chance? That Um, sounds familiar, but don't, don't give me a pop quiz. You should check into him. He's, he's a Duke. He's, he's great. Evolutionary anthropologist. He wrote, he just wrote a book called burn. A lot of the evolution of human metabolism type stuff and, and a fantastic communicator, but he, he, um, he, you know, he he was talking about the, I think it's these Hootie people. I think it's the name of the tribe that he. Is it and, Hamza or Hootie? I don't know. Uh, yeah. Okay. Hamza or Hootie. But either way, uh, they they do the um, uh, oh persistence hunting. <laughs> Have you heard of persistence hunting? Where it just goes on for a really long time. You 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 go to you. I I love telling people about this because it just blows my mind. You you go out. You're in the like African Sahara. You're you go out in the middle of the day, the hottest time you can, and you you can't run down some big gazelle or some mammal some or uh, you know some large antelope or something like that you can't run it down just you, you can't sprint faster than it yeah. but because humans can sweat we have this natural cooling mechanism so if you just with a team just kind of keep jogging over this thing and these these mammals they need to cool down through breathing and panting and there's something mm-hmm. about running that stops their su- stops their lungs from being able to function to full capacity mm-hmm. and so they just chase down this thing for like just wear them out four <laughs> hours <laughs> in the middle of the day till it falls over and mm-hmm. then they stab it and you got a meal and that's what you gotta do to eat and to to get meat and if you can imagine those guys coming back for exhausted after a day of that and then just seeing someone on a treadmill just running in place <laughs> right just just for fun like what just the they're, because world? they think they have to right yeah. i know imagine being able to do that activity instead because you have some purpose to it or it just is, just feels like something fun to do i hate treadmills so much so yeah. very anti-treadmill um yeah no that's a that's an example of just you know that's physical activity for a thing instead of because you just feel like you have to which yeah is so it's it's yeah. it's just is is it's just I'm, I'm not saying like um mcdonald's isn't uh, you know, complicit and, you know, uh, masking whatever harm <laughs> or whatever their products may be doing. But there's there's something that I, f- I find so few people hear about is why we have a preference for these things. Right. I mean, they're just the they're, first place. Right. And they're just still sorting out even taste buds and how taste buds respond and send messages to us and what that does to our feelings of satiety and things like that. And and. It applies to our brains as well because stress and anxiety are normal and can be, you know, they have utility. They're, it's useful for us to feel stressed about things, especially if they are in fact stressful <laughs> because then we 
try to problem solve our way out of them and we don't just sit there and let them happen to us just kind of like helplessly right and anxiety is something that keeps you alert to what could go wrong which if you're doing what you just described i mean there's a lot you know you've got to have some alertness about being out in the sun for four hours tracking some ungulate across you know savannah or something um but in the kind of with an in a more technological society that ameliorates some of those or mitigates some of the anxieties or adds so much stress that it's you know it goes it tilts over to something harmful then you know we kind of have lost our compass for the use of them and now they've become something that's disabling to us in those situations mm. i mean i i do think the this is this is some of the value of of sports and more recreational mm-hmm. type things where yeah where, where i do i do think you are able to um make use of an actual drive that evolved that exists inside of you which there there was a lot of there was a lot of pressure to compete and play fight and gain status <laughs> and do and do these various things throughout our evolutionary history and and uh whether it's uh jujitsu or playing pick i play pickleball a lot um or rock climbing or whatever else there mm-hmm. there is that that is that feels to me like tapping into something much more evolutionarily intuitive and natural than mm-hmm. say a treadmill or yes uh, yeah that's a good point and it's social I, I mean you know right. always go bolder with other people right but a lot of times you have a partner and and that intersects also with the anxiety is you know anxiety has a motor aspect to it and when you have anxiety you you know you do things with your hands um you know, I think smoking kind of was something that people used to do because it kind of helped with like in the social situations, especially with anxiety of all things we do that are movement things, right? And it's fascinating. Yeah. And if you you go out and you stomp some of that out because there's adrenaline involved and your cortisol levels um, are moving around. And if you go out and you fizz some of that out, you know, with your movement, then that helps with it as well. But if we're in a modern society where the only way you can do that is to get on a treadmill and then meanwhile you just got anxieties building up all around you anyway yeah. you know you're getting a double whammy there for having it over overdo itself and not be very useful interesting man yeah that is it for uh i i was a smoker on and off for many years and and anyone that's never smoked before or anyone that has smoked before rather i'm sure could uh uh, uh, could back me up in saying that there's definitely a social aspect of it where mm-hmm. you you step outside with someone and they might yep. just be like a slight acquaintance or something, but but you're smoking with them and you're bonding. It's it's weird because I'll yep. like I'll be you know I would be like in a party or in a bar or something like that with plenty of people to talk to would be socially anxious about it and be like, I'm going Mm -hmm. to escape this kind of overwhelming social situation. And then outside there's someone smoking and you naturally feel like connected.
connected to this person in, yep, in, yep. in some You've already way. got that in-group identity with them, right? Yes, that happens all the time, right? You step outside, it's just the one or two people. It's a lot more socially accessible. Plus, you've got this thing you're bonding over. Like, have you got a light? <laughs> I mean, that's such an wow. opening question. It gives you something to do with your hands. Um, it's, it's rodents when they are, I think they like have like social nervousness or anxiety or something, they bury marbles. And I sort of think that that is one of our versions of burying marbles and also looking down at our phones, pretending like we're super busy with them when we're just like completely befuddled socially, like in a room full of strangers where we're supposed to be circulating, you know, is another kind of version of that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh. Wow. Oh, that's fascinating. And that's, by the way, this is not a pro smoking campaign. This is, this is more of a. <laughs> no, 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 be, not at all. Be, Get be, a fidget back, spinner. <laughs> yeah. yeah but, well, well, this or is, something. this is just going back to the point that, that we're making of, of like, um, yes, uh, let's, let's be mindful of whatever cigarette company or fast food place and everything else but let's let's right. also let's also figure out why in the heck we are driven to like this thing in the first place right. because i i think well they're high yeah they're hijacking your reward pathways right and they're right. just giving you that peeing when you do it and then you, it also sort of facilitates well that the smoking thing you know would facilitate that social interaction it's just like drinking alcohol does the same thing it lowers a barrier for people so that they can engage which kind of has a utility if we're supposed to be able to engage socially and that kind of makes it easier like within reason there's a little bit of utility to that for us you know mm. just not supposed to overdo it hmm. so this is you know i i tend to if i were a better host i would i would have you <laughs> present what you think are the strongest points of your book but i'm a self-indulgent host and i love asking about okay. things that are very self-serving um and one of one of my big things that i'm always thinking about and probably uh, it's possible i'm just too hard on myself and that uh, about it and it makes the situation worse but considering i got the hour wrong that we were recording this you're you're familiar i i'm i'm so disorganized i have such terrible i'm not just like oh everyone thinks that about themselves it's like every relationship i've ever been in anyone that knows me any friend of mine it's a it's a situation like people are used to it they're like you know mm -hmm. it doesn't drive people as crazy once they get to know me but it drives me crazy um what what are some and and you know now we have medications we have various um yeah. different you know uh, uh, prescribed life hacks and and planners to, that you're supposed to I was just talking on my discord with uh with some some fans about daily planners and how so many of us start a year we get a i'm gonna get a daily planner and sharing how many of these daily planners that we've bought and then uh, never maybe used for two days and then buy another one the next right. year right so so what did yeah. you come across in in terms of any any of that some of the organizational some of the <laughs> focus skills yeah that's a good question i like it because i actually have kind of a 
similar problem yet I had come across as being kind of extremely organized. So I can explain that a little bit. There's a field of study called neuroergonomics, which just sounds terrible, but you know, ergonomics is making adjustments in your workplace so that you don't have pain and illness and stuff like that. Your chair is right for where you put your, so you don't get carpal tunnel and that kind of thing. And this field of study, you know, people who are academically interested in it, they're looking at like what happens when pilots get overwhelmed by everything going on around them so much so that they don't notice alarm signals going off, right? And so they need mm. some kind of machine support that says, oh, there's an alarm or haptic that like like rumbles, you know, and lets them know that they feel that the alarm has gone off. But we can kind of like, dial that back <laughs> into less serious situations um, for ourselves and use technology and even not use other people, but, you know, kind of coordinate with them or complement each other to support one another in situations like that. So one of them is just simply forgiveness. If people know that you know, you're somebody who just is kind of on your own time <laughs> and this is an acknowledged situation between you, then you've got a friend who gets it and you know they're unlikely to just get incandescent with you about it and they will just forgive you. I mean, that's fine as long as it's not you know a situation you're just abusing as an excuse to not show mm-hmm. up on time. But I have trouble remembering things. I always have. Like, I'll go so, speaking of rabbit holes, get so far down a rabbit hole, I'll forget that I'm supposed to pick up a child from school. Mm-hmm. You know, one of my own children, you know, at like 3 p.m. I set up alerts and I have a lot of them. And because you can also become immune to alerts, I have another technique that so far has not failed. The alert sends me a Gmail and I put it at the very top of my Gmail box is unread because after 25 years, 30 years of email, I still have not reached the point where I will not notice an unread email at the top of my inbox. And mm. so it sits there, it's bold face. I will look at it every two minutes and go, oh, an email, <laughs> like just over and over. And every That's time I'm like, oh, I have to go pick him up in a little bit. So they're just, you have to come up with your own ways. You can't buy a daily planner the whole world uses and just expect that's going to work for you necessarily. For some people, you have to find your own things that work for you. It probably does. I would not be one of those people because I would forget to look at it. So it has to be something, you know, is going to be in front of your face and is going to let you know at the right time what's going on. I keep my to-do list in my Gmail inbox. I send myself an email and then I open it as like though I'm going to respond and then it stays as a draft. And that has a mm. little red word draft. And just visually, I'm always like, oh, a draft. <laughs> and I go look at it. And that's how I maintain my um, dynamic to-do list every week. I can change it, drop in links, reminders, reach day, all this other stuff. Just sits there. Unsent says draft. I notice it because it's red. <laughs> Interesting. You just have to come up with kind of your own things for that. No. Oh, I love that. I love that. Yeah. Well, it, it's, it's, uh, I mean, I actually, I actually thought the pilot example is a really nice one because there's, there's a lot of, um, you, have you read the checklist manifesto, uh, by chance? It's, it, no, it, 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 it doesn't, it, it's, it, it's, it's like, uh, it's, it's, it's like, a science 
based self-improvement book about checklists and how they get used in various domains like hospitals and flying and stuff. Do you use, oh yeah, yeah. Oh, I know what you're talking about. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I do know that, what you're talking about. Memory. Yeah. Like basic checklists that have gone into um, like what happens when, when there's a engine problem on a plane or what happens when someone is showing signs of, uh, you know, cardiac, uh, issues or something like that in an ER mm-hmm. room and, and simple check to make sure that you don't miss any steps. But it's it's the main revolution of the book is that even these experts, even even this expert cardiologist mm-hmm. and everything uh, is benefiting from just having this very simple organized thing that they are forced to go over and check each thing as as part of a procedural yeah. uh, and and it. It feels like um, it. It feels like there are little simple uh, things like that. That when we find them for ourselves, it can make the complicated chaos of life a lot more manageable. Yes. Uh, um, and those two things I just described made a huge difference for me. Yeah. So. Somebody else just might find them worthless. So, <laughs> you know. Right. Well, going back to um, going back to some of the other thing you mentioned, exercise as uh, as something that has lots of global mm-hmm. transfer. That makes sense. I mean, you mm-hmm. exercise, you're you're feeling better, you're in better shape. Maybe you live longer. You have less health problems. Maybe you look better. You you attract mates or other friends whatever else it shunts sure it shunts oxygen to your brain and your molecules that you need there's um some research that suggests that it at least sends more of some molecules to the brain maybe some of this is mouse studies but that will dampen inflammation in the brain like physical activity may well be doing that um it's so a, a, key, a biomarker or a marker of Alzheimer's disease may be hypometabolism or undermetabolism of glucose in the brain and exercise mm. boosts metabolism of glucose. And then there's a, a factor, a protein, it's um, brain-derived neurotrophic factor, which is a horrible name, but what it does is it refreshes neuronal connections for you in the brain and exercise or physical activity seems to boost that as well. So there are lots of, you know, even down to, you know, mechanisms like the things that underlie Mm -hmm. it that suggest that as well so exercise is a great example do you have any other (laughs) uh, do you have any other examples of kind of global transfer things um the other two were mindfulness practices which i came yet so my um the publicist people described the uh, book or my writing in it is agreeably cynical (laughs) which i thought was kind of funny (laughs) i thought that was pretty observant of them um and so I did come into especially mindfulness practices as like, agreeably cynical about them just because yeah. I think it, it, some people intuitively get what they're going to do. And some people are like me and just kind of too impatient or they just, you know, I didn't dismiss it out of hand. What I wanted to do was look at them and see, well, so many people swear by these. What's the evidence base? What do trials of these practices show? And it turns out that what trials of those practices show is that, yes, you do see improvement across a lot of facets of what we do with our brains from mood to kind of just um, uh, attention, lots of things like that. Anxiety, stress, 
So it's a yeah, it's a pretty global effect that that has on us. Yeah, I was surprised. I, I was. <laughs> that's it's that's wonderful to hear because i i mean um growing up something like meditation i guess just seemed a little uh silly to me which is contrary to our exercise point there there's ways in which our social lives actually get in our way a little bit when we care about other people's judgment and what they might think of a certain behavior or what we look like or something and uh and I'm surprised I didn't get into it sooner. I'm also surprised I don't meditate more often than I do because you don't really have to twist my arm to do nothing. If a lot of people can't sit still, need to be working on things, I'm like, ah, oh, I'll do nothing. And so if the worst that I get out of 10 minutes of doing nothing is nothing, then I'm like, all right, well, that was a good, good chunk of nothing. And it does Are seem you really, to... Yeah. Are you really doing nothing? Because from what I found, right. what you're really doing is keeping yourself from going into that rumination spiral, right? You're like, oh, yeah, yeah. and you click yourself out of it, which means you're using attention and you're using using executive function to say, uh oh, you started going down in the spiral, you better stop that. You're mm. using both of those other aspects of uh, your thinking processes and uh, so use it and, you know, get better at it kind of thing. So I guess it, it feels like nothing because you're not moving around, I guess. But in your brain, you know, there are things apparently I have learned <laughs> there are things going on. I wrote this during the pandemic and I started using a lot of those things and i think that it really it helped me a lot through some did of the terrible a, stuff did you have a practice that that uh that you you took to that you that worked for you so i just made one up because again i'm just kind of Im impatient <laughs> so my practice was this if i felt that i was spiraling i used both of those networks that i just talked about to go oh you're spiraling stop look around look what you're doing right now you know in the moment that kind of thing, just really putting myself back into just this moment. And I kept saying to myself, and maybe this is a little dire, but you know, I just, if I were going to kick the bucket, like in, you know, two hours from now, I wouldn't want to have spent those last two hours just, you know, in an anxiety and anxiety spiral. I would have preferred mm -hmm. to have spent them appreciating what was going on around me. That was great right then during that time. Hmm. Yeah. It, uh, that bringing attention to those when, when the mind goes off and does that is is uh interesting and in, in creating space i feel like curiosity is such a important element in mindfulness and i consider myself to be a pretty curious person and at the same time you know what i've never really thought that much about before is what is curiosity like what what's going on there what's the utility of it what's it, it's a reflection of openness and when you're when you're showing openness that means that you're you're oh, it, it interacts with being fluid in your thinking and you will take in information and that helps you kind of reconfigure a worldview or you integrate that information into what your worldview already is. And so you update your learning and you gain wisdom and experience from it. It's really helpful. Curiosity is an amazing thing to have and to actively try to use. What's some, what's some mindfulness research that grabbed you that you thought was uh, some of the more convincing or, or right. 
They um, it, they do have some randomized trials where they have people who have no experience with it and then people who have great deal. And what they were doing is that a, a lot of these, they were giving them surveys about, you know, how is your mood, your anxiety or whatever. Um, and then also in some of them doing imaging in real time, it's functional MRI, which if you you've got to do a lot of controls for it to, for it to be valid, but they would see kind of a reconfiguration of some brain networks and people, once they started them, these practices and then see improvement in like symptom scores and things like that on, on scales of measuring depression, anxiety, even I think attention and executive function as well. Hmm. Um, did you, did you arrive at, so within those studies, what kind of practices are they, what are, do you, do you have a sense of, in terms of the methodology, do you have a sense of the bare bones, like go to meditation practice from, <laughs> uh, that, that seems to bear out the best in uh, experimental settings? So this is kind of a, an issue with a lot of neuroscience studies is that they don't all use the same approaches or the same measures. And a lot of them have kind of small numbers of people and a bunch of other things. And so it's hard to compare across studies. So what I just came down to in the book, because I am certain by obviously no means a expert in meditation practices, I said, you know, they, they use various ones. They're different things like, like breathing or um, focusing on like things like um, emotion recognition. There's just there lots of different approaches that they were using. So I just said, go explore it and find one that fits you because that's part of the tailoring of this, just like the neuroergonomic stuff I just described. You have to find the thing that fits for you, not what everybody else says works great for them because it may not be the case for you. Breathing well, seems to be a good one. And you know, the breathing, do you have an Apple watch? It's always trying to get me to breathe. Do you have one of those? No, I have a Fitbit and okay. it never, it's never asked me to, to breathe. breathe. <laughs> and the Apple watch has this Maybe app that's broken. like, you need to breathe. No, <laughs> but it does have this thing. It's like, you need to do your breathing. And the thing is, is that that's one of them, because if you're doing the breathing, your, you know, your executive function part of your brain is like, okay, you're supposed to be focusing on breathing now. And if you start to ruminate, then your, you know, attention parts like, Hey, hello, <laughs> you're supposed to be focusing on breathing. So that's a pretty low bar to access. I think just to do breathing practices like that, you don't need an Apple watch. You can just, you know, what is it just reminding slowly. you randomly intermittently through the day or, or, I think it or might is it picking up on I blood pressure know. or something? I don't know. I think it's something I never turned off. It just kind of came with it. And so every once in a while it's like, Hey, <laughs> you it's need unpredictable to though. I, I don't, I'm not good enough with the passage of time to know if it does it on the schedule. <laughs> Sometimes I'll think, okay, I'll breathe. But most of the time it's like a lot of other little alerts that come through. I'm just like, oh, I can't breathe right now. Well, you know, I, I, I guess I just ask because as we are, as we're kind of um, talking about things with, with uh, more global transfer. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's one of the things with meditation is getting beyond yeah. that. It's not just that 10 minutes that you spent focusing on your breath. You start kind of becoming a little bit more aware when you're spiraling or whatever else through the day. And you've changed your yes. relationship to those uh, thoughts. Yeah. That's what they found that people were like, Oh, I'm doing the thing and much and do and figuring that out a lot faster. 
They're becoming, mm. you know, better um, self indicators of when they were doing that and how to get themselves out of it. Mm. I've had that experience too. I've gotten better at it. I haven't even been doing it that long. Hmm. Um, so we have, so for the big three, we got fitness, we got mindfulness. And, mm-hmm. and by the way, this is always like, for me, you know, you kind of, I, I kind of need to hear some of the, the basics over and over again and said <laughs> in different ways, because sure, yeah. we've, all, we've all heard like, it's not like I'm unaware that I should exercise more, yep. be more mindful, but man, easier said than done. And it, and it is helpful to have these reminders and hear something phrased in a, in a slightly different way. And it connects and inspires a little bit more. So what's the third one? Yeah, I agree with you. I know this everybody's like, yeah, okay, fine, physical activity. We know that or whatever. But in the book, I do try to put, you know, here's the evidence base for it. And here are some mm-hmm. of the, the real things that happen when you do it. And so the third one is um, social interaction. And I want to say, because my sister was like, what are you talking about? I'm not going to go hang out with a bunch of people. And I was like, I know I'm an introvert too. I don't like to spend time with people. Mm-hmm. A lot of it, you know, I like to be alone a lot, but you do have your, your intimates, right? The people who whom you trust or you can spend time with. And so that is helpful. They show that if you maintain a, a, a social circle of friends, and especially if you do things with those friends, physical activities, um, that is a, something that gives you global benefit and some longevity of that health span for the brain. And there's a subset to it, which is storytelling if we connect with other brains, like by reading stories that people have written, um, when you're doing that, you're getting your, you're putting yourself into the mind of the characters, right? But also into the mind of the person who wrote the story. You're trying to predict where they're going. When you're making predictions, you're actually latching on to a problem and trying to solve it. And you're looking for clues that get you to the solution. Mm. So you're doing all of this mental work, right? When you're engaging with other brains, whether it's in person or you're doing it, listening to a podcast or reading a book they wrote or even a song that they wrote, you're, we're doing this all the time. And it is, you know, problem solving is at the core of what we think of as being like smart or having like great cognition. And we're doing that all the time when we engage in these social processes with each other. That's really interesting because I, I'm, I don't, uh, I probably read um, a fiction book like once every five years or so, maybe Mm -hmm. once a decade. I just, I just always tend to gravitate towards science books and I love doing research and going down rabbit holes as well. And, uh, speaking of needing to hear things said in a different way, that's, uh, that, that makes me inspired to, um, to, uh, have integrate some fiction into my reading list. That's great. I think I'm going to give a you know, boost to nonfiction because there are studies that show that, that, you know, also is helpful. And I think people who write nonfiction, and we do try to communicate by telling stories. We don't Mm -hmm. just say, here's a list of the things, right? We try to use stories to do that and to communicate. And it doesn't even have to be words. You can look at the cave painting at Lascaux, right? At the, the, the bull, right? That Mm -hmm. very old, like 15,000 year old cave painting. And look at that. And try to get into the mind of the person who made that and why they did it and what 
what motivated, how did other people around them react to, I mean, all kinds of things, right. That you start to think about. And that's a story that you're trying to tell Mm -hmm. while you time travel back to people who lived 15,000 years before us. And that is again, another form of like prediction and problem solving and things like that. That's interesting. I bet, I bet it wasn't well-received. There was just the one, right? You would think there's the big presentation and then everyone was like, oh, okay, whatever. And Ah, then they just gave up and didn't make any more. (laughs) But then I also think, wow, I wonder if this person was, you know, among the people with whom they lived, were they extremely creative? Like, was this an an anomaly? Was it a talent? And then where they have the handprints, you know, and you just think about them, Mm -hmm. they're going up to and putting their handprint on there and creating it. I don't know. There's something really evocative about that. And it does make us spin those wheels Mm -hmm. um, in kind of a globally effective way, I think. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. It is. I, I, I wonder, I wonder how much thought they were giving to, um, people in the future seeing this thing, they would have had no idea. I I, I don't, you see, that's a really good question. You have to think, right? Like, I don't know. Yeah. But right. Yeah. Um, well, what about, um, what about any, were there any, uh, things that you found don't work for a lot of people or oversold quite a bit. You probably found a lot of things, yeah. my, my guess yeah, is. A, a couple I was kind of disappointed by, actually, um, omega-3 fatty acids. I think there were, you know, there were quite a few studies that suggested that it might have some brain, they might have some brain benefit, I think, especially for mood, and they don't. They put them in randomized mm. controlled trials, and that just sort of just knocked the feet right out from under that. And I was sort of disappointed because, you know, you just eat salmon and you'd just be yeah, better. Yeah, would have been awesome. <laughs> it didn't really yeah. turn out that way. Vitamin D, I don't think, has kept a single promise that it, it was, no. seemed to have been making, like, for anything. And this is one of them. It, it's, it's not uh, doing Especially it either. at this time, people are like, yeah. whoa. You're worried about COVID. <laughs> Do you have enough vitamin D? Like, yeah, oh dear. You know. Yeah, it's not, it's not, it wasn't like for heart stuff, for brain, you know, just really yeah, yeah. not much there there and a bunch of supplements i think are kind of popular so like you go buy loba and ginseng and things like that there's not a great evidence base for those either so mostly supplements are just a fizzle and a Mm. lot of the times don't contain what it says on the tin anyway and Mm. sometimes contain things that you don't want to be taking so they're they're very kind of just i'm not Oh yeah, not super fan of getting into those. Me either. I try to <laughs> remind people of that often, so that's that's good to um, hear you say. I it, were were there anything? Were there any supplements along the way that that you you felt might? I mean, like, like there's, I mean, obviously context is really important here because we talked about you know there are people with legitimately you know b12 deficiencies and vitamin d deficiencies and and things um that's a legitimate thing that really exists and there's interventions uh potentially for that were Mm -hmm. were there but were there was there anything that you found that would help the average person 
So that's the thing. I don't think an average person exists, right? right. I, the, the, like, even if you look at, at studies of antidepressants, um, they show there's an average effect, right? But if you look at the populations in those studies, the way it seems to shake out is that there's an effect for like half of them and then no effect for half of them. And so it looks like the average is a certain thing, but it's really like nothing much over here and a whole lot over there. And so it's hard to know until we get to the point where we can figure out who's who and what their physiology is and how that's going to respond in interaction with some of the things people are taking. It's hard to know what average is and how somebody's going to respond to things. So that makes it kind of difficult. They don't, I don't think they know why antidepressants are like that. Did you do anything about um, placebos and, and not, not even in a yeah. cynical way, but in like oh, a yeah. way, ways of triggering. I say over and over again on this show that I think in many ways, <laughs> life is about finding the placebos that work for you. Yeah. And there, there are so many, you know, that I love placebo research of the using a bigger pill or having like the person <laughs> with authority, give it to you or, mm -hmm. you know, doing these, like the heart surgery one, you cut people over open and don't do anything at all and they get better than the people that didn't that either right. had surgery or 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 didn't have surgery and because they believe something happened to them and <laughs> and uh i think in terms of i i also have started saying that that uh i've been thinking about snake oil and how what you really need to do is make your own snake oil because you know, <laughs> you're gonna have to like learn about reptiles you're out hiking you're chasing snakes like and then you got to figure getting... out how to oil this thing and you went through all this like you're going to there's going to be a part of your brain that's like, well, I wouldn't have done that for nothing. Right. Sunk cost. Yep. <laughs> you, know? you put all this investment in there, you're definitely going to get something out, right? <laughs> Even if it's yeah. just kind of a thing you made yourself. Yeah, I do I, have that. Ikea effect you'll, a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I've been stuck in here for hours. So I'm going to buy some meatballs. Um, the um, Yeah, there's one that probably you might find particularly interesting is what was called an N of one study. They had a few dozen people. Um, then each person was their own control. These people were, um, they were, they were experts, not experts, they were experienced at microdosing. So they had this kind of microdosing regimen that they followed. And for this study, they had... The people, they, they had these pills that were packaged into envelopes that the researchers packaged in, and some of them had their microdose in it, and some of them didn't, and they were barcoded. And so every day they would scan the barcode and take what was in the envelope and, um, and then report how they felt. And what the researchers found is that just as often, or maybe even more so, when it was just empty, there wasn't anything in the pill they were reporting that they had felt something. And one of the people in the study was actually like, man, you actually managed to get spirituality in an empty capsule. <laughs> that's so cool. <laughs> and that's totally a placebo yeah. effect. All right. That's interesting. That's I thought that was great. I wish somebody could do that for me. <laughs> you know, and I'd just yeah. be like, oh, that totally worked. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I've been... I, I've always been really skeptical of microdosing as someone who very much enjoys psychedelics. And I, I, I do believe in, uh, although I've 
I've also had experiences where I've gone too far with them, but I've, I've had, I've had plenty of transformational, um, changes from big experiences because there's also, I mean, something's certainly happening, but then in addition to whatever's happening, there's, there's also like a a placebo effect attached to Mm. that as, as well. Even if there's a real effect, there's also a placebo effect. And so I, I I have, you know, I started with these microdosing with these, um, these gummies and they, uh, they like upset my stomach a little bit. And that's just, and so I'll take it before bed instead. When I remember, I'm not super serious about it, but Sometimes I'm like, I think it's just because it's upsetting my stomach that I think it's working. (laughs) And it does kind of make me the next day. I'm like, ooh, am I more creative today? (laughs) And and The side effect is the effect. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. In a way. That's interesting. I I mean, that's uh, that's some of the speculation with some of the antidepressants out there, um, too, is that it's like kind Mm. of, you know, you're feeling something. Is it actually making you uh, like like you know chemically uh less depressed or is it that you are feeling like well something's happening in my brain and that effect yeah. is then leading to yeah it's it that's hard to know right again because we just don't have enough precision medicine i i, I definitely i mean people are taking antidepressants and those that are working for them you know please <laughs> keep yeah, taking yeah. the thing that works for you right? right but yeah i don't know um they have done trials where placebo effect edges up on any apparent effect of some of those drugs so that you know there's probably some there to that especially when you're like hey take an antidepressant for six weeks and then you'll feel better in six weeks it's like well most depression um, doesn't last for six weeks so you probably feel it, better right that's another <laughs> thing is you kind of got to figure out like you know how intractable is it how durable is that kind of mood disablement versus something that's a natural response to what's going on in the world around you and just trying to figure out you know when it crosses over and to help i need help you know, professional. Yeah. Well, um, you have, you have ketamine on the, on the cover of your book. We got, yeah. I'm, I'm a, I'm a real big fan of, of ketamine. I, I must okay. say, I must say that I, in terms of like well being, in terms of like making me a better person or something like that, I wouldn't say I've gotten a lot out of it, but super fun. Very much enjoyed the experiences. Easy peasy mm-hmm. one as far as the experiences go. In my case, not everyone responds in the same way. Right. Um, I've, I've heard there's some research that indicates that it's actually people that have no prior psychedelic experience that have like a big ketamine experience for the first time. And this is like mm. a very life changing event for them right yeah apparently if, if people have a psychedelic event that has some kind of um spiritual aspect to it like jesus or gandhi came and visited them you know during it that it makes it even like more especially life-changing but back to the ketamine i do it's one of the few things that i talk about that is uh, there's an fda approved version of it for depression esketamine um and the reason I talk about that and chose to talk about it in that chapter is because people have to go through six or seven, like half a dozen drugs that don't work for them before they can get to that one. Mm-hmm. And I just, I think it's reputation you now is like a club drug and all this other stuff kind of made, I guess, that happen. They can't just go to that sooner and get the effects of it sooner. Right. So that's why I wrote about it in that chapter. But yeah, it just seems to 
have effects on mood that don't just come across as like some kind of major placebo thing you know yeah yeah well and and i should actually clarify just a little bit for listeners too i actually did i did i, I first took ketamine really fingers crossed that it was going to elevate my mood didn't but i enjoyed the experience enough to keep doing ketamine like here and there somewhat regularly for like a year never felt like a mood increase just enjoyed the uh experiences that i was having and then um and then had a long break and then recently i started doing some again and i i've had a couple times where it just like it freed up something and it, it my my mood had was a lot more positive and interesting uh, it, it, after that fact it was like a full year of like eh, you know fairly regular ketamine use and like yeah nothing i guess i guess this just isn't a thing that's going to alter my mood and it's just this experience and then it and then it truly did feel like it was changing it over time but yeah there is a pattern that if the if so, for people who are more severely affected by something they'll see a greater benefit they they start lower right and so i guess maybe they're getting the boost is something that's more noticeable for them versus people who are nearer to kind of a, a normal level of something um but in in the the way ketamine is used now clinically these folks are they're next door to like getting electroconvulsive therapy if they can't try something like ketamine because these six or seven other, you know, antidepressants haven't worked for them. So they've got incredibly intractable depression. I think some of them, you know, are doing it because they're at acute risk for, you know, dying by suicide and things like that. Um, and it does seem to be a bridge for them to kind of get past that, those depths, mm. you know, and get to something a little more, a, a little less intensive and dramatic than something like ECT. Mm. And what about, um, as we start wrapping up, what about, yeah. um, you know, there, there's kind of criticized some of the modern, um, uh, the various supplements that have been peddled, actually just a long history of supplements. They're not all that modern, but, um, <laughs> they're as dominant now as, as they've ever been. And, mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, so, Hey, maybe microdosing isn't all it's built up to be, but maybe a nice placebo effect or something. But what about, uh, what is on the horizon, um, scientifically that you think might show some promise or where would you like to see things be investigated? Well, actually, they have gotten some results from some trials. Uh, I think the you know the groups doing them have kind of an investment, so there's always a bit of you know, grain of salt with that with psilocybin and um, you know not super high doses of it. In one trial, it was with um, an antidepressant, I think, but they do see some benefit for mood from those. Um, whether that would be the case for everybody is you know, not at all clear. The history of using psychedelics, you know, is so fraught that it's, again, it's like sort of like ketamine. They've got this reputation and you've got to work your way through the reputation, you know, to mm. get to where you can really test them and try them out. My um, grandmother tried LSD in the 60s because there was a guy in Texas who thought it might work for multiple sclerosis, which is something that she had. And mm -hmm. um, so there was like this 
back, even back then, kind of they were trying it out for different things. But now they're, I think, you know, they're really getting able to do good controlled well designed studies for them. And they seem to show some promise in some respects, not for maybe all the claims that are being made about them. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, I, I think that there's, They've, there's something that have certainly benefited my life in a lot of ways over the years and a couple times didn't benefit my life, but, <laughs> um, but, uh, so always caveats there, but yeah, yeah there, there's, there's, I think that there's some promise there, but what about, but what about kind of, um, is, is there anything else in terms of, um, just as we continue learning more about the brain and especially various mismatches with our, with our modern world and trying to kind of figure out with how to cope with cubicle life and things like that. Is there, do you have hope in the horizon that there will be some limitless pill around the corner one day? Not at all. I don't, I don't. In fact, I'm kind of concerned about the horizon and the um, last chapter of the book I write about research is being done where they're, you know, like the predictions are that someday they'll be able to sort of just put a memory in your head, which, you know, yikes Mm -hmm. um that they could record your memories and play them back to family and stuff which is like oh that sounds so sweet but then also putting it in someone's head does not sound good Mm -hmm. uh being able to like kind of a minority report situation where your brain waves are kind of predictive of what you might be doing next Uh, some of the neuroergonomic studies actually are looking at what is going on inside the the brain when like pilots aren't hearing the alarms and kind of trying to use that predictively to say, okay, this pilot is losing, you know, they, 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 they're, they're cognitively overburdened. We need to let a machine take over and things like that. And all of that kind of, you know, you're getting into pretty creepy territory when you start to think about like precognition and machines taking over things mm-hmm. like that. It sounds a little well, scary. I well, in, in in a way, that's that's kind of uh, it's kind of good to hear that for the foreseeable future, probably just keep things simple, focus on exercise and mindfulness and yeah. social interaction, and those do are, something you can't active with a friend. <laughs> fantastic. You know? Yeah. Well, everybody, I want you to check out the tailored brain from ketamine to keto to companionship, a user's guide to feeling better and thinking smarter. Emily Willingham, everybody. Thank you so much, Emily, for joining me. Thank you so much, Shane. It was a pleasure. And thank you, listeners, for being such wonderful, curious people. We'll talk with you next week. Hope you enjoyed this episode like i've been trying to tell people for a long time supplements i don't know science not totally there if you find something that works for you cool but i don't want to be forced to peddle them and sell them to you guys like i'm sure you hear a lot about on many other podcasts that you hear about So I stopped doing ads this year. When I started doing this podcast, I never wanted to do ads. I eventually got talked into joining a network and doing ads. 
and I hated it. They wanted me to sell credit consolidation stuff and every other damn thing. And why? Why interrupt this show for that? For money, it wasn't going to be enough money for me to, for it to make sense anyway, and it just made me miserable. So, if you want to support this show, you can check out Patreon. I think this is going to be the thing. I actually really enjoy Patreon. I like doing bonus things there. I like giving people the opportunity to support the show voluntarily. I know not all of you have the money to spend, and that's fine. I love that you get to hear this. I love that you get to hear it ad-free. And I love that uh, those of you that do have uh, the the cash to support uh, learning and hearing from all these great guests... Uh, can throw a little my way. If you like, if you don't have anything to give, you can always write a review for the show. You can always tell a friend how much fun this show is. Unless I uh, change around some of the timing of things, next week's episode is all about butterflies. Whoo! A a lot of really good evolution talk in there. Lots of, oh man. Got some metamorphosis stuff we're talking about. We got uh, we, we got changes in in ecosystems and modern environments and habitats and uh, how that uh, impacts the various wildlife out there. How various insects are going to have their evolution shifted. Some of the winners and losers and the knowns and unknowns. Really cool conversation. First of all, like if you don't like butterflies, you're a monster. If you think you don't want to hear research about the butterflies, totally get it. I get I was I was once there too. You hear like, why would you want to hear the science of like some uh, you know, like peculiar specific thing? Guys. Trust me, it just keeps building and building. You get to see patterns through evolution about how life itself works that apply to you, that apply to the universe, that apply to the world that you're in. And so a lot of these, a lot of these uh, uh, things like, like say you don't care about dung beetles or butterflies or you have no interest, you wouldn't necessarily be like, why would I want to hear about dung beetles? Just not something that you'd, you'd pick on. Normally, what happens when you learn about this stuff, though, is those things end up serving as a case study. And we start building on, on things that already uh, that we've been learning about through lots of other subjects that then have uh that that kind of more that higher transfer like we talked about in this episode that will be applied to a lot more things and i try to do a lot of topics like that that might seem like uh, you know okay grass do we need to know how grass works yeah sometimes sometimes you need to know how grass works to understand other aspects of how life works. And besides that, it's just so interesting in really surprising ways. So those of you that listen all the way to the end, you are, of course, my favorites.